This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, you're listening to Live and Learn with me, Dashran Johan. Law and Institutional Reform Minister Dato Sri Azalina Othman Said recently said that the government is mulling a new law to impose civil penalties on those who play up 3R sentiments, which is race, religion and royalty. The new act may be called the State of Nation Act and the minister also said that the government will hold discussions with relevant parties on Friday to the 21st of July to assess existing laws and look into the need for a new one. In response in response to that, the NGO Pusat Komas recently released a statement saying that it welcomes the proposal made by Azalina Othman. So on today's show, I'm going to be unpacking this with Dr. Ryan Chua. He's the Program Director of Pusat Komas. Welcome to the show, Ryan. How are you? Hi, hi. Hi, Dashan. I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good as well. Um, let's start by, um, you know, Pusat Komas' overall thoughts on this, um, because um, you guys recently welcomed the proposal by the law minister. Um, you all, re- uh, you know, wrote a, an op-ed on Malaysia Kini as well. Why do you all agree with this proposal? Um, okay, first of all, thank you very much for for allowing us to share a little bit more input with regards to this topic. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, when we speak about this topic, I think this is not something new, honestly, you know. Uh, in fact, uh, the proposal to curb issues of the three R race, royalty and religion has started even way back during the Barisan National uh, time. Uh, it is actually part of the National Unity Consultative Council proposal to actually establish three different um, bills to address such issues. So for me and for us in Commerce, we felt that, you know, this is timely especially with the current situation of race-religious relations in in, in the country, you know, where, you know, uh, it has been used as a tool by political parties for far too long and even certain groups and individuals to incite hatred, to incite uh, hostility against other groups. So again, this is something that we felt that it's uh, something that is timely, it's needed, and it's actually really welcome, especially, you know, previous administrations have yet to do something about this. Uh, and we, we are quite optimistic with, uh, you know, the minister's recent announcement that, you know, they could do something to try to regulate the use of 3R in, in our country. So we talk about regulating, um, you know, um, the, the whole of use of 3R sentiments. But, you know, some might argue that we already have laws like the Sedition Act in place. Um, and this law, the Sedition Act, has been used in the past um, you know, and in the present to sort of um, curb, um, you know, or to charge people whenever um, issues um, of race, religion and royalty are played up. Why is this inadequate to deal with matters concerning race and religion especially? First of all, when we look at the Sedition Act, uh, let's go back to history. It was first established uh, during the colonial times, uh, aimed to address the issues of communism and much more. But Taking that context into today's context is a totally different uh, realm that we are dealing with today. And especially when we are speaking with regards to Sedition Act, um, you know, it's really wide, it's really general, it's very ambiguous to a certain extent in which how do you actually deem someone to have a seditious tendency? Again, you know, there are no thresholds. Uh, In fact, we have seen uh, a lot of political parties in the past using Sedition Act to actually silence dissidents to also use that to silence their political opponents. And, you know, again, it's it's really uh, a tool that has been misused oftentimes. So, again, you know, noting the historical context in which where it's only relevant back then during the colonial period, 
and then we are framing it within um, within our context today. You know, it does not allow people to have open discussions. It does not. It creates a culture of fear uh, amongst the people. So when we speak with regards to the Sedition Act, one of the biggest issues is that there's no threshold. How mm -hmm. do we identify uh, someone to be seditious? You know, again, uh, you know, seditious tendency can lead to so many things. You know, if I am, I know if I'm affected by it, so does it mean that it's seditious? You know, so how do we draw the line? How do we identify what falls under seditious or not seditious? Right. So you offer a lot of criticisms about the Sedition Act. I think uh, most um, NGOs and progressive um, political players and all are in um, somewhat um, favour of, um, you know, getting rid of the Sedition Act. Would you say that what you are saying, because you are in favour of this new proposal by um, Dato Sri Azalina Othman, just to, to get a better understanding, um, are you saying that we should still, you know, push for the abolition of, of um, draconian laws like the Sedition Act but then we can have something a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more um, um, you know, specific, like this proposed laws to deal with issues like 3R. Yeah, most definitely. In fact, again, as I mentioned, Sedition Act has been used as a political tool. I mean, for far too long, we have seen how it has been misused and, um, by certain groups. Uh, to silence the dissidents and its political oppositions. Uh, but again, you know, when we when we restrict, I mean, when we remove the Sedition Act and uh, the coming up with new laws and policies, we are, we have to understand that these restrictions have to be formulated in a way that it makes it clear that the sole purpose is to protect individuals and communities that are oftentimes being discriminated, mm. um, being, you know, and much more. You know? it, it, it should be more in terms of that to protect groups who are already being marginalized or being discriminated rather than to protect belief systems, religions, or institutions from criticism. So I think that, that that's where we need to draw the line. You know, because oftentimes, you know, we 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 also need to balance. It's actually a very nuanced topic, you know, because mm -hmm. people will criticize and say, you know, freedom of expression is okay for me too. But you know, if you are expressing something to the lead to the point where you are you are going to marginalize certain group even more, then that, that, that's where we have to draw the line. You know, because it creates that culture, it creates discrimination, it creates, um, you know, you are making them more vulnerable. They are already vulnerable, but you have such such statements, then it makes them even more vulnerable to such uh, efforts. Right, and let's dive into that a little bit more because um, like you said, there is this counter-argument that people have brought up um, towards this proposal and I think, um, you know, whenever there are discussions about coming up with new laws to to sort of um, curb certain things, um, the, the argument is that, um, you know, coming up with such a law violates our freedom of speech speech rights or freedom of expression rights as enshrined in the constitution. How would you respond to this argument? Uh, once again, uh, when we come up with such laws, it, sh it should have safeguards, hmm. right? Again, you know, um, to a certain extent, we have international um, documents that we could make reference to. In fact, you know, uh, the Rabat Plan of Action is an, a good example for us to identify what constitutes as hate speech what constitutes as a possible incitement. In fact, they have high thresholds in which we can examine uh, whether that particular speech is, you know, is considered as hate or it's not. So I think that's where, that's a problem we have at, the, at this point of time. You know, seditious, uh, sedition act, you know, and in, in the definition of seditious tendency, it's really open to anyone's interpretation. But when we formulate new laws like this, there needs to be clear thresholds. There needs to be clear 
identifiers of what actually constitutes as the incitement of hate. You know, and, and at this present time, we don't have such things. So when we when we come up with new laws, these safeguards have to be put into place. And there should be a lot of ways in which where the judiciary themselves would be able to make those decisions under those thresholds. So it's very important that all these safeguards have to be in place. The current proposal, and this part I found really interesting, right? Um, the current proposal by the law minister is for this new um, act, um, you know, the State of Nation Act, um, for it to be, um, you know, and the offences that it will encapsulate, it's for it to be a civil offence rather than a criminal offence. Is that the right move? Uh, for us, we believe it is. Uh, mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it comes back to us the principles of sentencing. Uh, you know, what is the outcome of the imposition of a civil liability, right? Is it for retribution, deterrence, or rehabilitation? I think that's the biggest question, right? You know? So when we impose a civil jurisdiction for these offences, it could also assist us in solving one of the biggest issues of overcrowding in prisons. Imagine if you put all those uh, people who are sentenced to sedition uh, in the prison, then okay, we will have a lot of issues, you know. So we, we believe that there's only right for there to be alternatives to criminal law because we don't want the perpetrators to have a brand of being a criminal stuck in there just for inciting something. So again, it's 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 a way in which where uh it allows us allows them to learn from it. And of course, you know, it will also assist them to go back to their private life unhindered due to past mistakes. And we believe that you know they also deserve a second chance. And, and, and you know, it it really goes back towards the principle of sentencing. You know, if it's deterrence, then civil liability is enough. It's just to deter people. Right, absolutely. All right, let's go for a very quick break. On the show with me today is Dr. Ryan Chua. He's the program director at Pusat Comas. After the break, I ask him for recommendations for the government. Keep it here on Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Live and Learn. I'm Dashran Johan and on the show with me today is Dr. Ryan Chua. He's the Program Director at Pusat Komas and we're talking about the new law that was proposed by Law Minister Dato Sri Azalina Othman Said to deal with issues concerning 3R, which is race, religion and royalty. So, Ryan, um, what needs to be done so that the State and Nation Act or this proposed act isn't abused by authoritarian or uh, governments or forces to curb important or critical discourse around race and religion? Because many will point towards um, you know, pat historical patterns of various governments um, in, in Malaysia and how they, uh, you know, they, they sort of abuse certain laws for their political advantage. Throughout the years, we have seen this, right? Especially with, with regard to some of the draconian laws that currently um, exist, such as the Sedition Act. Prior to that, there was the ISA and, and so on and so forth. What needs to be done so that if this State and Nation Act comes to fruition, it's not going to be used the same way sedition and others have been used. Again, it comes back to checks and balances, right? Uh, so, you know, we need checks and balances to protect human rights. Uh, for example, we have Suakam uh, that should play the role of checks and balances. Of course, uh, the human rights institution per se has to adhere to Paris principles. You know, I mean, when we speak with regards to Paris principles, there are also different grading on how we look at the national human rights institutions. But that, that, that's a fundamental thing, you know, that to have checks and balances. What, Apart from that, what we is have, the, yeah. the Paris principles you're talking about? So it, it, Paris principles kind of grades the human rights institution, you know, in the sense that, you know, whether if it's an A-grade status, they have been given certain privileges uh, to be able to speak at the UN and much more. But, you know, they are graded based on how they adhere to the international standards of a national human rights institution. 
right? So, so that's the Paris principles. Uh, so that's one in terms of how um, Suhakam in Malaysia can play the role of checks and balances. Secondly, also we have the parliamentary select committee, uh, you know, the special committees that would also, and the opposition themselves could also play the role of checks and balances of the government. All right, so we need to identify and root out you know, the, that those are some of the things that we need to do at this point of time, uh, really to put them into check and balances. And I think that's how laws are, you know, in, in general, we really need to have, ensure that, you know, all those laws are put in the proper place and done in a proper way. The second thing that we need to ensure that the State and Nation Act isn't abused is also in terms of identifying little Napoleons uh, within the authority. Is, you know, to minimize possible abuse, you know, by certain groups of people within the civil service. And I think this is quite obvious, you know, at certain point of times, you also have certain groups of people who believe that they know the ins and outs of all of this, but then, you know, it's a wrong interpretation of law. Mm -hmm. And then when they, they put them into place, then that, that's, that's really very difficult. So that's also in terms of like, you know, how the constant training, how these groups of people are consistently updated on human rights this is going to be very important. Um, the third thing is also in terms of how civil society organizations like us uh, should be involved in consultations. Because again, you know, we, we provide that either other view of protecting human rights in general, right? So to ensure that the adherence to the principles, the fundamental principles of freedom of speech and, you know, the human rights can be upheld. And of course, again, you know, these are all really very important in that sense. And one, one, more, one more key important thing is also in terms of transparency, right? So we need to declassify all relevant documents and investigations of the consumption of the public. Again, you know, a lot of times we, we try to sweep all this under the OSA. Hmm. But, you know, when there's lack of transparency, then you are leading people to make a lot of um, ideas, you know, and leading people to make a lot of assumptions. And when you're making these assumptions, we don't know what's happening. So let's just be transparent, share the reasons why they are. And then that's when we can critically debate and comment about all of this. Do you also think it's important that before we get this off the ground, laws like sedition needs to be abolished first? And the reason I ask that is because before the break, you already talked about the, the need to abolish um, draconian laws like sedition and then um, come up with some, uh, you know, you, you talk about, you know, let's say the State and Nation Act, how that can be, you know, something more nuanced to sort of tackle the issue of um, 3R. But my question is, if, let's say, the Sedition Act isn't abolished first, and then, let's say, in the next six months to a year, we get this act, doesn't it just give um, people in power um, more avenues to, um, you know, go after people that... Um, they may not be in agreement with or, you know, doesn't it just give people, because right now, um, let's say there is an issue of race and religion, people, they, will, might, they might use the Sedition Act. Next time, if the Sedition Act is not abolished and we have this new act, so they, they can refer to the Sedition. Do they use the Sedition if they want to? Do they use the State and Nation Act if they want to? Do you sort of foresee these kind of pitfalls? Again, this is where checks and balances have to come into play, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, Let's be frank, not only the Sedition Act is problematic in our country, we also have the Communications Multimedia Act, right. which are also often being misused. There are a series or a, a, a big group or big number of laws and laws and uh, acts that are already draconian in its way, you know. So even if they remove sedition, um, you know, they still have so many other laws that they can use. But again, the, the, the key point is that, you know, the introduction of these new laws should not have the same 
idea like what the sedition act is you know there needs to be certain thresholds there need to be certain characteristics that uh, we need to fall onto and only by then then we can make those decisions because the problem is that now if we have sedition act it's so ambiguous anything can be seditious mm-hmm. right yeah so again you know um you know when they have so many other acts as well so again how then should we point them out, call them out for doing, for using all these uh, draconian laws? And don't forget the current government themselves are the opposers of these draconian laws when they were in opposition. So it's even more relevant and even more pressing for them to you know, to not use these draconian laws, but to introduce ways we follow by following critical thresholds that we need to follow. Yeah. Absolutely. So... Now, moving away from, you know, regulating, um, you know, issues concerning 3R2, perhaps talking about um, these issues, right? There is a difference, um, Ryan, or at least there needs to be a difference, right, between playing up racial and religious sentiments to spread hate um, and having critical discourse about race and religion. How do you draw the line? Right. So... I totally agree with you that there needs to be a point where we separate playing out racial religious sentiments and to have critical discourse about race and religion. And that's one of the biggest problems and contributor to the erosion of social fabric in our country today. Uh, one of the biggest things that we need to do is really to have conversations about other race and religion. You see, the problem that we have in our country today is that you know anything related to other religion it's deemed sensitive. Mm-hmm. But if we don't have conversations and discussion about that, then how can we critically understand them and appraise them? You know, in, in one of the research that um, we did in Comas, it, it's quite intriguing to find that, you know, there, there's a big distance, there's a big dissonance between different ethnic groups because they don't even know each other well. And that's the problem. Because for them, the only point where I meet other ethnic groups to certain groups where we interviewed is only when we are buying something, <laughs> you know. Right. But, you know, even let's look at our our homes, you know, most neighborhoods today are all particular of a particular ethnic group. So our exposure to different groups are already very, very limited at this point of time. But then on top of that, we limit conversations about these groups. So that's where we, we we cannot have that kind of critical discourse. We cannot understand things. And sometimes it's through that open discussion that we are only able to understand these points properly. And, and, and that's where, you know, we need to really draw the line. Of course, there are groups that continue to stir racial, religious sentiments just for their own benefit. But we need to have critical discourse. We need to have that kind of common understanding. In fact, one of the discussions that we had in Comas as well, you know, it shows that, you know, even the putting of the, the flowers around the neck by Indian communities to a person, you know, it for them, uh, for the group that who were there at that point, they thought that, oh, this is against their religion. But in actual fact, there's no religious connotations to that. And why do all those interpretations come to play? It's because there's a lack of understanding about different race and religion and their practices. So how do we bridge that gap? You talk about lack of understanding because I think sometimes as a nation, um, we have the tendency to either play up racialized politics or just be outright racist or just avoid talking about race and religion altogether. So it's either one or the other, right? Mm. Um, how do we foster a culture where we can talk about race and religion in a manner that allows us to examine ourselves and, and society critically without veering into 
playing up racial and religious sentiments to spread hate. All right. So this is something that's happening in our country from, mm-hmm. you know, we, from our own monitoring. You know, we, we, we see a lot of politicians and policy makers are really inclined to play the race and religion game, you know, and this is to pander their support base. Right. Really, yeah, all right. You know, so, uh, you know, there are also a lot of them who speak out against it, but they don't want to touch about or hurt the sensitivities of other groups as well. So I think that the bigger question then is that, you know, sometimes, you know, these, these are all tendencies, but we need people to speak up and to call out these actions. And the problem is that we don't have in our country. If there is, so it's just that, you know, this is just a warning. This hmm. is just a warning. You know, we need to say that, look, whatever you're doing, it's eroding the social cohesion of our country, the the, the, the social fabric of our country, and this needs to stop. And, of course, the current government is trying. I mean, we can see that there are efforts, you know, there are warnings by the Minister Fami Fazil. There are also, the Prime Minister has also, you know, criticised a lot of efforts and attempts to use race and religion. But, Again, um, it's a systemic approach that we have to go through. You know, education today as well has to play its part because you know it's, we are so fragmented. Malaysians today are very fragmented. I gave you the example of how homes, are, our homes themselves are also very segregated. Even in the schools, you know, we have seven streams of schools and, and it's so segregated. National schools are predominantly one ethnic group and then there are so many other choices the wealthier ones are going to all the private schools and much more for better education. So there are so many factors that are already separates us. And, and, and you know, the politicians themselves are just playing into the gallery because they know that this is where they can, they can get their support. But this is where the holistic approach needs to come to play, the political commitment and will. It may not be a populist move, but that effort needs to be done. For those who may not understand, Ryan, how would you differentiate... Um, playing up racial and religious sentiments versus having critical discourse uh, or discussions about race and religion? How would you differentiate that? All right. So in, in one of the ways that we have seen, uh, you know, playing up race, uh, religion, you know, in in the recent elections, what we have seen, one of them is to fear monger. Okay, if this particular ethnic group is going into power, then this would affect, you know, this particular ethnic group. There's also another group that plays this, I like, know, you need to vote us because we are the sole protectors of your ethnic group. So that's that's how they play in terms of that, you know, okay, we need to defend this religion. And by voting us, we will be the, you know, you will ensure that your religion is being defended. All right, that's one. But to have a critical discourse is really in which way I say, okay, to question those, those ideas, you know, okay. So, for example, you're saying that you are going to protect us, but you have been in power for so many years, X number of years, but our welfare is still the same. So that's where we need to have that kind of conversation. You know, understanding things from a critical lens, um, looking at it in terms of like, is this really relevant? Is this really true? You know, like for example, uh, issues pertaining to race, religion, you know, they say, oh, for far too long, this particular ethnic group has been marginalized. Then let's go through the facts, identify the facts and okay, these are all the initiatives. Why is it not working? You know, is it the failure of the ethnic group or is it the failure of the politicians or the leaders? You know, so that kind of conversation is not happening. But it's always at a very surface level that, okay, if X ethnic group takes over, then our ethnic group will be affected. It's always like that, you know. So, so that's, that's, where, that's where we need to really uh, draw the line between, you know, having that kind of playing and stirring up sentiments and emotions as compared to really having a critical discussion about the issue. So, 
the law minister has said that, you know, she'll be um, having discussions um, this Friday, um, you know, to see how they can take this idea forward, this idea of a um, State and Nation Act. What would your recommendations for the government be? Uh, once again, I think in our statement, we have also highlighted that let's not reinvent the bill, <laughs> really, you know, because the National Unity Consultative Council back then has actually came up with three suggestions of bills. Uh, one of is the establishment of a National Unity Consulti- uh, uh, a National Harmony and Reconciliation Bill, and also it's also an establishment of a National Harmony and Reconciliation Commission. So all this has been done. Of course, it was shelved. But then when uh, in 2018, when Minister Vita Muti was there, he actually released the NUCC uh, document so that everyone is uh, aware of it. And all those has already been done, actually. So don't reinvent the bill and start focusing on it. In fact, consultations on the commission has also been done and completed. So, you know, all this has already been done. Let's just make reference to those because civil societies ourselves have also given our input with regards to that. Uh, it's only sad that, you know, it, the, the 2018 efforts were, all could not take into place because of the change of government. But we hope now with the political stability at the federal level, you know, um, this could be a commitment. In fact, Minister Azalina has also pushed the establishment of a child commission, right? So why not do the same for, the, for re- issues re- pertaining to race and religion? In fact, a lot of this can be mediated early on. You know, if there are any unhappiness, any any discon, uh, you know, anything that we are unhappy with, you know, you can have this kind of tribunal to have this kind of discussion, the mediation group to mediate this before it explodes into what we are seeing today. So, because there are no remedies in between, it's true. If you are doing something wrong, let's take you to the court. <laughs> you know, but let's have a commission. You know, to have that kind of mediation processes in between. If there are any issues, we have a tribunal to help you overcome. And all these have already been outlined. It has already been done. The draft acts are already been done. It's with the should be with the unity ministry now at this point of time. So again, you know, let's use and don't don't start from scratch. Let's just work from what already exists. All right. Before we wrap this conversation up, Ryan, would you have a final message for us? So again, uh, I mean, this is a good law, as I as we have mentioned. Uh, but you know, again, we need to be very careful in the formulation of law. A good law is only good when we have safeguards and thresholds that we can adhere to. Uh, so again, you know, let's try to protect FOE, you know, freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and that's also going to be something, uh, you know, to curb any incitement of hatred and much more. I, I think that's pretty much I have to share. Well, on that note, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. That was Dr. Ryan Chua. He's the Program Director at Pusat Komas. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Live and Learn, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.